Part three, chapters one and two of Democracy in America, volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Democracy in America, volume two, by Alexis de Tocqueville. Translated by Henry Reeve. Part three, influence of democracy on manners, properly so called. Chapter one that manners are softened as social conditions become more equal. We perceive that for several ages social conditions have tended to equality, and we discover that in the course of the same period the manners of society have been softened. Are these two things merely contemporaneous, or does any secret link exist between them, so that the one cannot go on without making the other advance? Several causes may concur to render the manners of a people less rude, but of all these causes the most powerful appears to me to be the equality of conditions. Equality of conditions and growing civility in manners are, then, in my eyes, not only contemporaneous occurrences, but correlative facts. When the fabulists seek to interest us in the actions of beasts, they invest them with human notions and passions. The poets who sing of spirits and angels do the same, there is no wretchedness so deep, nor any happiness so pure, as to fill the human mind and touch the heart, unless we are ourselves held up to our own eyes under other features. This is strictly applicable to the subject upon which we are at present engaged. When all men are irrevocably marshalled in an aristocratic community, according to their professions, their property, and their birth, the members of each class, considering themselves as children of the same family, cherish a constant and lively sympathy towards each other, which can never be felt in an equal degree by the citizens of a democracy. But the same feeling does not exist between the several classes towards each other. Amongst an aristocratic people, each caste has its own opinions, feelings, rights, manners, and modes of living. Thus the men of whom each caste is composed do not resemble the mass of their fellow-citizens, they do not think or feel in the same manner, and they scarcely believe that they belong to the same human race. They cannot, therefore, thoroughly understand what others feel, nor judge of others by themselves. Yet they are sometimes eager to lend each other mutual aid, but this is not contrary to my previous observation. These aristocratic institutions, which made the beings of one and the same race so different, nevertheless bound them to each other by close political ties." Although the serf had no natural interest in the fate of nobles, he did not the less think himself obliged to devote his person to the service of the noble who happened to be his lord, and although the noble held himself to be of a different nature from that of his serfs, he nevertheless held that his duty and his honour constrained him to defend, at the risk of his own life, those who dwelt upon his domains. It is evident that these mutual obligations did not originate in the law of nature, but in the law of society and that the claim of social duty was more stringent than that of mere humanity. These services were not supposed to be due from man to man, but to the vassal or to the lord. Feudal institutions awakened a lively sympathy for the sufferings of certain men, but none at all for the miseries of mankind. They infused generosity, rather than mildness, into the manners of the time, and although they prompted men to great acts of self-devotion, they engendered no real sympathies for real sympathies can only exist between those who are alike, and in aristocratic ages men acknowledge none but the members of their own caste to be like themselves. When the chronicles of the Middle Ages, who all belonged to the aristocracy by birth or education, 
relate the tragical end of a noble, their grief flows apace. Whereas they tell you at a breath, and without wincing, of massacres and tortures inflicted on the common sort of people. Not that these writers felt habitual hatred or systematic disdain for the people. War between the several classes of the community was not yet declared. They were impelled by an instinct rather than by a passion. As they had formed no clear notion of a poor man's sufferings, they cared but little for his fate. The same feelings animated the lower orders whenever the feudal tie was broken. The same ages which witnessed so many heroic acts of self-devotion on the part of vassals for their lords were stained with atrocious barbarities, exercised from time to time by the lower classes on the higher. It must not be supposed that this mutual insensibility arose solely from the absence of public order and education, for traces of it are to be found in the following centuries, which became tranquil and enlightened whilst they remained aristocratic. In 1675 the lower classes in Brittany revolted at the imposition of a new tax. These disturbances were put down with unexampled atrocity. Observe the language in which Madame de Sévigné, a witness of these horrors, relates them to her daughter. Rocher, 30 octobre 1675 Mon Dieu, ma fille, que votre lettre d'Aix est plaisante Au moins relisez vos lettres avant que de les envoyer. Laissez-vous surprendre à leur agrément, et consolez-vous par ce plaisir de la peine que vous avez d'en tant écrire. Vous avez donc baisé toute la Provence. Il n'y aurait pas satisfaction à baiser toute la Bretagne, à moins qu'on aimât à sentir le vin. Voulez-vous savoir des nouvelles de Rennes On a fait une taxe de cent mille écus sur le bourgeois, et si on ne trouve point cette somme dans vingt-quatre heures, elle sera doublée et exigible par les soldats. On a chassé et banni toute une grande rue, et défendu de les recueillir sous peine de la vie, de sorte qu'on voyait tous ces misérables, vieillards, femmes accouchées, enfants, errer en pleurs au sortir de cette ville sans savoir où aller. On roua avant-hier un violon qui avait commencé la danse et la pyrie du papier timbré. Il a été écartelé après sa mort et ses quatre quartiers exposés aux quatre coins de la ville. On a pris soixante bourgeois et on commence demain les punitions. Cette province est un bel exemple pour les autres et surtout de respecter les gouverneurs et les gouvernantes et de ne point jeter de pierre dans leur jardin. In another letter, she adds, Vous me parlez bien plaisamment de nos misères. Nous ne sommes plus si roués. Un en huit jours pour entretenir la justice. Il est vrai que la penderie me paraît maintenant un rafraîchissement. J'ai une toute autre idée de la justice depuis que je suis en ce pays. Vos galériens me paraissent une société d'honnêtes gens qui se sont retirés du monde pour mener une vie douce. It would be a mistake to suppose that Madame de Sévigny who wrote these lines, was a selfish or cruel person. She was passionately attached to her children, and very ready to sympathize in the sorrows of her friends. Nay, her letters show that she treated her vassals and servants with kindness and indulgence. But Madame de Sévigné had no clear notion of suffering in anyone who was not a person of quality. In our time, the harshest man, writing to the most insensible person of his acquaintance, would not venture wantonly to indulge in the cruel jocularity which I have quoted, and even if his own manners allowed him to do so, the manners of society at large would forbid it. Whence does this arise? Have we more sensibility than our forefathers? I know not that we have, but I am sure that our insensibility is extended to a far greater range of objects. When all the ranks of a community are nearly equal, 
as all men think and feel in nearly the same manner, each of them may judge in a moment of the sensations of all the others. He casts a rapid glance upon himself, and that is enough. There is no wretchedness into which he cannot readily enter, and a secret instinct reveals to him its extent. It signifies not that strangers or foes be the sufferers. Imagination puts him in their place. Something like a personal feeling is mingled with his pity, makes himself suffer whilst the body of his fellow-creature is in torture. In democratic ages men rarely sacrifice themselves for one another, but they display general compassion for the members of the human race. They inflict no useless ills, and they are happy to relieve the griefs of others, when they can do so without much hurting themselves. They are not disinterested, but they are humane. Although the Americans have, in a manner, reduced egotism to a social and philosophical theory, they are nevertheless extremely open to compassion. In no country is criminal justice administered with more mildness than in the United States. Whilst the English seem disposed carefully to retain the bloody traces of the dark ages in their penal legislation, the Americans have almost expunged capital punishment from their codes. North America is, I think, the only one country upon earth in which the life of no one citizen has been taken for a political offence in the course of the last fifty years. The circumstance which conclusively shows that this singular mildness of the Americans arises chiefly from their social condition is the manner in which they treat their slaves. Perhaps there is not, upon the whole, a single European colony in the New World in which the physical condition of the blacks is less severe than in the United States. Yet the slaves still endure horrid sufferings there, and are constantly exposed to barbarous punishments. It is easy to perceive that the lot of these unhappy beings inspires their masters with but little compassion, and that they look upon slavery not only as an institution which is profitable to them, but as an evil which does not affect them. Thus the same man who is full of humanity towards his fellow-creatures when they are at the same time his equals, becomes insensible to their afflictions as soon as that equality ceases. His mildness should therefore be attributed to the equality of conditions, rather than to civilization and education. What I have here remarked of individuals is, to a certain extent, applicable to nations. When each nation has its distinct opinions, belief, laws, and customs, it looks upon itself as the whole of mankind, and is moved by no sorrows but its own. Should war break out between two nations animated by this feeling, it is sure to be waged with great cruelty. At the time of their highest culture, the Romans slaughtered the generals of their enemies, after having dragged them in triumph behind a car, and they flung their prisoners to the beasts of the circus for the amusement of the people. Cicero, who declaimed so vehemently at the notion of crucifying a Roman citizen, had not a word to say against these horrible abuses of victory. It is evident that in his eyes a barbarian did not belong to the same human race as a Roman. On the contrary, in proportion as nations become more like each other, they become reciprocally more compassionate, and the law of nations is mitigated. CHAPTER Two that democracy renders the habitual intercourse of the Americans simple and easy. Democracy does not attach men strongly to each other, but it places their habitual intercourse upon an easier footing. If two Englishmen chance to meet at the Antipodes, where they are surrounded by strangers whose language and manners are almost unknown to them, 
they will first stare at each other with much curiosity and a kind of secret uneasiness. They will then turn away, or, if one accosts the other, they will take care only to converse with a constrained and absent air upon very unimportant subjects. Yet there is no enmity between these men. They have never seen each other before, and each believes the other to be a respectable person. Why, then, should they stand so cautiously apart? We must go back to England to learn the reason. When it is birth alone, independent of wealth, which classes men in society, every one knows exactly what his own position is upon the social scale. He does not seek to rise, he does not fear to sink. In a community thus organized, men of different castes communicate very little with each other. But if accident brings them together, they are ready to converse without hoping or fearing to lose their own position. Their intercourse is not upon a footing of equality, but it is not constrained. When moneyed aristocracy succeeds to aristocracy of birth, the case is altered. The privileges of some are still extremely great, but the possibility of acquiring those privileges is open to all. Whence it follows that those who possess them are constantly haunted by the apprehension of losing them, or of other men's sharing them. Those who do not yet enjoy them long to possess them at any cost, or, if they fail, to appear at least to possess them, which is not impossible. As the social importance of men is no longer ostensibly and permanently fixed by blood, and is infinitely varied by wealth, ranks still exist, but it is not easy clearly to distinguish at a glance those who respectively belong to them. Secret hostilities then arise in the community. One set of men endeavour by innumerable artifices to penetrate, or to appear to penetrate, amongst those who are above them. Another set are constantly in arms against these usurpers of their rights, or rather the same individual does both at once, and whilst he seeks to raise himself into a higher circle, he is always on the defensive against the intrusion of those below him. Such is the condition of England at the present time, and I am of opinion that the peculiarity before adverted to is principally to be attributed to this cause. As aristocratic pride is still extremely great amongst the English, and as the limits of aristocracy are ill-defined, everybody lives in constant dread lest advantage should be taken of his familiarity. Unable to judge at once of the social position of those he meets, an Englishman prudently avoids all contact with them. Men are afraid lest some slight service rendered should draw them into an unsuitable acquaintance. They dread civilities, and they avoid the obtrusive gratitude of a stranger quite as much as his hatred. Many people attribute these singular antisocial propensities, and the reserved and taciturn bearing of the English, to purely physical causes. I may admit that there is something of it in their race, but much more of it is attributable to their social condition, as is proved by the contrast of the Americans. In America, where the privileges of birth never existed, and where riches confer no peculiar rights on their possessors, men unacquainted with each other are very ready to frequent the same places, and find neither peril nor advantage in the free interchange of their thoughts. If they meet by accident, they neither seek nor avoid intercourse. Their manner is therefore natural, frank, and open. It is easy to see that they hardly expect or apprehend anything from each other, and that they do not care to display, any more than to conceal, their position in the world. If their demeanour is often cold and serious, it is never haughty or constrained. And if they do not converse, it is because they are not in a humour to talk, not because they think it their interest to be silent. In a foreign country, two Americans are at once friends, simply because they are Americans. They are repulsed by no prejudice, 
they are attracted by their common country. For two Englishmen the same blood is not enough, they must be brought together by the same rank. The Americans remark this unsociable mood of the English as much as the French do, and they are not less astonished by it. Yet the Americans are connected with England by their origin, their religion, their language, and partially by their manners. They only differ in their social condition. It may therefore be inferred that the reserve of the English proceeds from the constitution of their country, much more than from that of its inhabitants. End of Part 3 Chapters 1 and 2